Hi, I'm Jared Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. The first designers I remember loving before I went to school for design and before I even really understood what design was probably were Ray and Charles Eames. When I was in high school, just beginning to realize what this field was that I wanted to be a part of, the Eames were an inspiration as they worked across products and furniture and graphics. They made films and patterns and articulated a clear and accessible design philosophy. I wanted badly a molded plywood chair for my childhood bedroom. And I wanted even more, I think, to do work like that, to be in that world. Over the last 20 years, my interests in design have shifted and my own career has shifted. The people that I look to for models have changed, but somehow the Eames have been the constant. So I was interested in a new nonprofit that launched earlier this year called the Eames Institute of Infinite Curiosity. The Eames Institute is not an archive of the Eames work or a foundation focused on preserving their legacy as much as it's an institute interested in furthering the work that Eames started, in thinking through what that work might look like today and how it might live in a world like ours. I was also interested in the Eames Institute when I saw that Sam Graw was involved as their chief brand and marketing officer. Sam is someone whose work I followed for a long time. Before he helped launch the Eames Institute, he worked at Herman Miller, first as their editorial director and then as their global brand director. And before that, he was the editor-in-chief at Dwell Magazine, where he worked for 10 years. So for this week's episode, I invited Sam on the show to talk not just about the Eames Institute, but also the evolution of his own career. I was interested in this move from journalism to in-house editorial and the collapsing boundaries between brand and journalism. We also talk about the work he's doing at the Eames Institute and how he thinks about telling that story, telling the Eames' story in a new way. We talk about the early years of Dwell and sort of publishing in the early 2000s. And there's some fun Herman Miller history in here. And we talk about how he ended up writing the book on Nike's design history. This is a fun one. A transcript for this episode, as with all our episodes, is available to our Patreon supporters. Scratching the Surface is made possible because of listeners like you who help support the show each month. Patreon supporters can get bonus interviews, an exclusive monthly newsletter, and all sorts of other additional content each month. Students can support the show for $3 a month, and we offer additional tiers at $5 and $10 a month for added benefits like getting episodes early and things like that. You can head over to patreon.com slash surface podcast to sign up and get immediate access to all of those archives. That's patreon.com slash surface podcast. Thank you for listening, and here is my conversation with Sam Graw. Your current role is you're the chief brand and marketing officer at the Eames Institute of Infinite Curiosity, which is this new organization that, that just launched um, a couple of months ago now. And I think it would actually be good to start there and we can kind of work backwards a little bit. So can you, just to kind of frame this, what is the Eames Institute of Infinite Curiosity? Sure. That is a great question. <laughs> uh, we are a new nonprofit 501c3 public charity, and we are dedicated to kind of sharing the philosophy, the lessons, and sort of the way that Ray and Charles Eames approached problem solving and approached design 
and the way that they looked at the world and sort of thinking about how that is still incredibly relevant today and how we can use that as a lens sort of for looking into our own world and inspiring others to um, to solve problems in their own way, in their own world with some of that same enthusiasm and optimism and spirit that Ray and Charles brought to it. So I have a question about that, but I'm gonna ask you another very basic question <laughs> first to frame this. So in your role as chief brand and marketing officer, what are you doing? How, how's like, how are you kind of thinking about that from a branding and marketing perspective? Sure, it's a little, I mean, it's funny because I, it's chief brand and marketing officer and then my department is called like com communications and creative. And so like, <laughs> it's a little all over the map. But it, uh, and I'm by no means a traditional marketer, although my roles at Herman Miller and here have fallen into that right. kind of bucket. Um, I think of myself more as sort of a storyteller based on right. my past experience in editorial. But um, we're, we're basic, I, I think of it as kind of like everything that comes out into the world goes through sort of the filter and lens of my team and department. And so like we're, we're really responsible for bringing the Institute to life for people. And because we launched largely virtually, that has been mostly through our website and through uh, social media. We've done a pop-up with Herman Miller in New York last spring and are, have a lot of like much cooler and more interesting and more tangible things on the horizon. But we sort of have launched after many years of being um, of operating sort of in secrecy, it was important just to get get going <laughs> in right. a way and like put a first kind of like volley out there. So that's what where the sort of stage we're at right now. Um, but I but I, it's like it's like that out you know everything that people can see, feel, and touch is kind of what we're doing. I mean, what's interesting to me about it and why I kind of asked you kind of how you describe the institute and then how you think about your role is because there's and correct me if any of this is incorrect there's already an eames foundation you know they manage the the case study house they sort of manage the the, the archives and and the you know the, the the legacy and it seems like you're doing some of that but this is also a new thing this is looking forward this is looking today and i'm wondering how you kind of think about that from a story perspective of kind of looking yeah. at the history without like you know, romanticizing the history or staying in the history? Like, how do you kind of separate this or say like, this is new and this is like, you know, relevant now? Yeah, I mean, if I am super well aware that this is like, <laughs> there is a crowded space that is Eames because not only is there the foundation that looks after the house, but there's also the Eames office that's been in, you right. know, it is sort of like the family business that's been in like a continuity with Ray and Charles's practice for over 40 years. And they've like largely kind of carried, like kept the torch lit for that time right. and have like, you know, hold, um, you know, the copyrights and most of the assets in some ways. What we are, how we are different is we acquired from the family, the collection that like came out of 901 after ah. Ray passed away. Um, and then that itself is complicated because the files and the photography and the films went to the Library of Congress. And that was a kind of a, a plan <laughs> that had been enacted even during Charles's lifetime and something that Ray kind of worked on like packaging and delivering to the, uh, to the Library of Congress mm -hmm. like in her final decade. And then after that, 
um, you know, the, the, the way the story goes is that like the trucks pulled off, like pulled away from 901 with all the stuff that went to the Library of Congress. And it looked like nothing had been touched because <laughs> you can imagine sort of like that the way that they work, they didn't do drawings of chairs, although Ray did a lot of doodles of chairs. Um, they made right. They made parts, they prototyped things. They actually like experimented with the materials and with the processes. They designed the processes to design the furniture. So like all that like evidence of their process was there. Um, at the time, 1988 or so, um, the Vitra Design Museum was really one of the like the only entities mm -hmm. that was really mm -hmm. interested in this stuff. And Rolf Fellbaum had obviously worked with the Eameses in his like you know his career, and they were hugely influential. And so Rolf was really interested in plywood, and a lot of those early plywood prototypes went to the VDM. And so mm -hmm. that material is there. Uh, at the same time, like the conference room like was wrapped up and went to the SF MoMA and the <laughs> lobby of 901 was wrapped up and went to LACMA. And okay. so you, you have this like, and then the Henry Ford uh, acquired Mathematica from the family oh, right, a few years right. back and did an yeah. amazing restoration and has acquired other things over the years. And so like, there's this whole, uh, you know, and there's parts of the history at Cranbrook. There's right. obviously a ton of the history at the Herman Miller archive. Like it's all over the place, but like we have this unique piece. That's this collection that came out of 901. That is like all the drawers from the graphics room and all these, mm. you know, um, you know, all this sort of, I, I hate to say it, but it's like bits and bobs. And some of them are really amazing treasures in the bits and bobs, like the original plywood elephant or um, parts, you know, parts of airplanes made out of plywood that, you know, were experiments, their tests, right? Um, and like all this kind of stuff. Um, so it is, it is an amazing collection and it's very unique because we call it as it, it's also like a working collection. So where there are things that are torn or there, there's tape on things, that's like what they were looking at as the problem right. solving. Um, right. Lucia, so this material went to Lucia Eames, Charles's only daughter, and she eventually had built this sort of ranch and house and work barn where she built these large scale sculptures or, uh, as her art practice and had this sort of archival material. And she lived there with her daughter, Lisa, who's on our team. And Lisa right. was sort of like the family archivist. And all this material was with the family for years. It traveled in the VDM Library of Congress show in the early 2000s. And then again with the Barbican show that was organized a few right, years ago. Right. So, so pieces and parts of it had been seen. And like over the years, uh, people from Herman Miller, and especially like the local San Francisco sales teams like knew Lucia was here and knew this stuff existed, but it was always kind of just like by word of mouth. And mm. now like we are the stewards of Lucia's ranch as well as this collection. And, I but see. yet, you know, it is a very like crowded space. And I think like <laughs> the way I think about it, that that's different. And again, it's taken us like what, 10 minutes to sort of wade through all of this, but like, Whereas the foundation and the office are really about Ray and Charles, and to an extent we are as well, I want it to be more about someone like you or, you know, whoever right. interacts with right. it. And it's kind of like, it's more about what you take away from it and how it inspires you and the experience of it that we can kind of create for you than it should be about sort of fetishizing the past or of like romanticizing the past. And I think that's what we're trying to I mean, essentially, like we're prototyping that and we're learning as we go and we're trying to figure out like what what works to do that. Like, how can we inspire people? How can we you know, use this historical collection to look forward?
instead of look backward. Well, I mean, how? Do, <laughs> here's the question, I guess. Then it's like, how do you do that? And I mean, thinking about it even as a brand and kind of talking about this crowded space, it's so. E- I mean, the, the Eames are so um, canonical. There's the, the, there's um, you know there are the, icons. They they have these known forms and shapes and colors. How do you? And even like the way they talk and you know all of this stuff. It's just it's it's in the air. And how do you? How do you tell this story without emulating them, mimicking them, you know, without mm. it just being nostalgia for them, but to say, this is something new. This is, there, there is more work to do with these things. You know what I mean? Like, how do you kind of find that balance between honor, emulation, mimicking with, this is also something different, <laughs> you know right. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. No, I mean, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, I think one thing from a, it's so easy just to kind of like step into what you imagine to be like, a, uh, well, first of all, there's a quote, not by the Eameses, but about the Eameses is something like there was no house style. And right, so right. I think that is in and of itself. And if you spend any time with the Eames design book, which is the sort of like still the best sort of encyclopedia yeah, of yeah. all Eames things, um, it's like based on, you know, it's every project from their whole career in a timeline um, that there isn't just one thing. They were so omnivorous and so multifaceted that, you know, as soon as you think it's one thing, it's actually about 700 more. Right. So I, there is that at least to say like, you know, and, and as soon as you get into a thing of like, they have this, or it's like, it's all about a stencil font or it's right, all about right, bright, right, you know, these right. sort of like circus bright colors or it's mid-century. It's not, it's kind of like, it was the appropriate solution for the problem they were trying to solve. And I think you have to like, it's more about a process that gets you to the yeah, right solution yeah. than yeah. it is about uh, kind of like anything referential. And I think where the things like start to feel fall down is when they're just surface and referential um, where it's like a pattern treatment or a color style or something versus it being like, well, let's get into this thing deeply and try to understand what what it is we're trying to do. And then like, carry that out in a way that we think is the most successful way to do it. Um, I, I, I think, I mean, I guess that's, that's like, sorry, sorry to cut you off there for a second, but that's kind of like what I was, what I was like trying to get at is like, so I see so many historical projects, whether those are monographs or, you know, exhibitions or things that are talking about something. I think like the Bauhaus is a great example of this, where it just like, it becomes frozen in time and reduced to something. So it can then be like translated across these different things. And so like the Bauhaus, for example, is like square circle triangle. It's these three primary colors, but it's actually like much more complex than that. And the same thing at times can happen to the Eames. And I guess that's like my question is like, how do you, how, how do you not default to that? You know, cause it's such a challenge to kind of maintain that complexity. And so I guess it's the process that you're talking about, kind of thinking more about kind of ways of thinking and ways of working, yeah. but how are you kind of thinking about that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, that it's such a higher bar too. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't know that there's any one way I would just say that like my experience also with Herman Miller was to have this like le- amazing legacy brand and yet, you know, Herman Miller, right. the era that I worked in, it was very different. It's easy to, you know, like, right, just right. admire and fall in love with the mid-century Herman Miller. It was amazing, right? Like, that stuff is still so inspiring and in many ways unsurpassed. Um, and, like, how incredible that a company still makes a product that was designed in 1946. 
right? right like right. Uh, there's very few companies that do that actually and so but at the same time it's like our job or my job there as like leading brand was like to, to kind of extract the dna from that and then express it in a way that felt relevant to today and i don't know that there's any secret formula for that you just try <laughs> um <laughs> and you you know you can kind of try to like look at what the essence of these things are and of like um you know something of of what the approach might have been but the solution is going to just be different because today is different and i think that's where it's right. like i think the eameses would be horrified if we were just like copying <laughs> right. the mid-century although i i love the sort of weird side of them that's like into victoriana <laughs> yeah. stuff like like music boxes and kitsch wallpaper and right. you know you know like the the griffith park railroad is like a victorian railway station in miniature it's amazing but um and so they were kind of doing you know they were kind of like postmodern before postmodern yeah, um, totally but uh but again it comes back to that like i just don't I, it's not about trying to kind of resuscitate anything it's about trying to like look at that for inspiration as one point of inspiration and then to i think like get deeply into process and into like uh, finding appropriate solutions and that was really i mean that's just basically what i think we i did for a decade almost at herman miller and now at the Ames institute yeah well let's let's actually like go back even farther for a second i want to talk about herman miller but i, I mean you said something early in this conversation that you're not a traditional marketer you're not really a designer you come you think of yourself more kind of storytelling and, and writing uh you spent you know, the early part of your career, 11 years or so at Dwell, you were there like right at the beginning of Dwell, right? Yes, I was there. Uh, I call it day two. Okay. Um, because there was a great, I mean, there was an awesome team in place that was sort of like made the first issue and made the prototype and kind of that Carrie Jacobs, who was the founding yep. editor, put together. And yep. I joined right after the first issue had been published or had been put out in September of 2000, but was... Um, the second issue hadn't come out yet. And I think in my like second week or whatever, it was the launch party for the second issue. So I, I in earnest started kind of on issue, issue three, I think is my first okay. uh, one on the okay. masthead. But yes, I was, and then like, I was the editorial assistant and then assistant editor and then editor and then senior editor and then executive editor and finally right. editor in chief. So I like went through it all. Right. In it seems as I, years. as I was looking, I was like, I think he's held every position possible at Dwell over these ten years. I talked to both Carrie and Allison, your kind of predecessors at, at editor in chief on the show before. And Dwell is is always such an interesting publication to me. I was an early reader to it. I was sort of in late high school when it came out and you know, a kid interested in design and architecture and and really liked it. Um, but in retrospect, what's interesting to me about it is how how that era, kind of the 2000s up to the 2010s, is such an interesting era for publishing and media and specifically like design media. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about kind of how how that experience in those 10 years shaped a lot of this thinking that you're talking about that you're doing at the Eames and even the work you did at Herman Miller, how kind of being like journalist, you know, editor influences how you think about storytelling now that you're on the inside of a, a, a company like this. Sure. I mean, I, I think it was, I always um, 
sort of referred to it as like my postgraduate education in <laughs> right. design. Right. And it was amazing because, you know, doing the things that we did and kind of just having those like open, you know, an editorial meeting every week or, you know, brainstorming with the editorial team about like, okay, well, not only what your issue calendar is going to be. And I love that, like, dwell, we had themed issues. Cause right, it, like, right. then you really thought about how you spin off this theme in different ways. And it gave you this like lens to try and find things to like fit into that box. But, um, you know, it, it was amazing to be able to kind of like be interfacing with a, Japanese architect one day and then a French product designer the next and then meeting some kids from a school in you know New York doing furniture at a design fair and you know like you could you, I really felt like you were in the sort of center of this universe or in like all these things and you could connect to just like anyone and anything doing something in design and obviously there was the lens of of residences but really dwell covered everything uh, in, in some ways. And so it was very open to, to do that. And then I think the way in which we did it was to, and I think the mandate, which was cool was to like make this accessible to everyone right? and right. to not have, you know, like there is great, there was great architecture media. There's always been great architecture media, but right. like largely it's directed at architects. And so what if you made it instead about like normal people and that like everyone should have an opinion about architecture because we're all in buildings all the time. And that's like shaped so much of our experience. And so that, that was kind of one side of it. The other side of it, I think is that like, I always loved sitting with the, um, with the graphic design team, um, maybe more than the editorial <laughs> team. And, right. you know, so, but it's certainly like through sort of osmosis or just working together, like, learned a lot about graphic design from my colleagues like Jeanette Abink and um, Sean Hazen was a great first senior designer, Emily Anderson, Kyle Blue, Jeff Halbert. Like there was just like great, great graphic design teams at, at Dwell. And yeah. like they were, and it was like modernist graphic design and rules-based graphic <laughs> design <laughs> and like both the sort of like Swiss influence and Dutch influence and like really an emphasis on typography and on type hierarchies. And so like, I just learned a ton from those designers that really served me well. And I think that like in my career, I've always kind of managed to like be able to kind of like speak like a designer almost or like speak <laughs> in their language. So like yeah. sitting in an architectural crit and the architecture professor is like, oh, I didn't know you didn't like you weren't an architect or like to sit in with the design team and speak like a graphic designer. And they're like, you know, we're talking kerning and letting and right, whatever right, line widths. Right, and right. so, you know, it, it, part of it's just like, but that's all kind of through osmosis or like uh, through just interest and like immersing myself in it. And in some respects, that's a lot like the Eames is like it, nothing like you could, you could like anyone can do anything. Like let's not have so many boxes but it is then a matter of like to do it well, you have to like really invest in it. And it's not about being sort of like a novice in, in everything, but it, right. it is to say that like it's possible. And I, I don't know. I feel, uh, I'm not sure if I've answered your question, but um, yeah, that was yeah, like, I mean, like a, a lot of the, a lot of what informed me at that point in my life was both like the external inputs of like, 
hanging out with the Burlex and doing, you know, going on awesome assignments to write about houses in the Midwest or in Hawaii or in Paris or whatever. And then at the same time, like working with the team at Dwell and like learning from like Carrie Jacobs was amazing. Yeah, Such a great, yeah. like she's voice. The best. <laughs> she's yeah. just the best. She's like the, my favorite design writer still. And yeah. like, you know, and Allison had, you know, this great interest in prefab and like really mm, just mm-hmm. like, I think was able to kind of like um, expand dwell and like really grow it in an amazing way and also it was just like the whole team the editorial team andrew wagner virginia gardner like they were amazing people like there were it was like one of those situations where like it was just the right stew of the right people and it made this really unique cool thing and there's like those times in my career where you have this like just awesome mix of people and you really feel like you're kind of like moving the needle Um, yeah yeah but that was the case definitely with the early days of dwell. And then, you know, I think we kept the torch lit pretty well for a while. I mean, I love that you brought up the graphic designers. Cause I think, you know, as, as somebody who wanted to be a graphic designer and was studying graphic design in those early dwell years, I, half of the reason I got that magazine was because I just loved the, the design of it. Um, when, when did you end up becoming editor in chief? I think it was like 2006. It might've been 2000, somewhere in the, yeah, 2006, I think. And so, so, you know, in that sort of like mid to late 2000s, this is the era of blogs, you know, sort of online publications. There's this question of like, what is, what is the future of print? Kind of, I'm curious kind of what you were thinking about as you sort of rose to the top of the masthead what were you thinking it meant to be a magazine in 2006 um you know what sort of ideas were you thinking about or what was kind of on your mind about just the state of publishing and like what it meant to be a design magazine then great question i mean i think it was already interesting in 2000 right right especially in san francisco because uh you know there were that was like we we kind of launched right right before the dot-com first dot-com crash and so like it was e this and i that like everywhere in san francisco for those years and here was this like print magazine launching which already felt a little bit different um and so Uh, we always already had this kind of like we're we're being iconic we're being like uh going against the grain of like where the world is headed and yet then like the internet and had hadn't really even grown into its you know, um, yeah, grown yeah. into itself yet at that point. Um, and Dwell's first website was very cute and, um, <laughs> you know, like so hyper kind of designed and I probably was in flash or something. Um, but like, you know, I, I, I think it. about the fact that when I went on assignments, like my colleague Virginia and I did this amazing 2,600 mile road trip in the Midwest. I don't think either of us had cell phones back then. And we certainly, I don't think we had laptops either. So, you know, it was just like, we weren't out there blogging. We were out there like absorbing what we were supposed to be absorbing and taking notes. And then I came back and wrote this sort of dispatch. But like, so I, I in a way, I feel like I'm, have this, I, I'm at this age where like, I didn't really grow up with a computer um, until high school or so. And so I sort of straddle this like mm-hmm. computer world that we live in now, but like feel a lot of affinity for the pre-computer world. Um, and yeah, I feel fortunate in that actually, especially as I see my my sons. 
but uh <laughs> but that was also the case with dwell at any rate and like we were you know i think dwell like sort of weathered the dot-com crashes and it, it grew it kept growing circulation was growing was pretty healthy getting a lot of advertising and then you know like we kind of the the digital side kind of just like grew into its own thing mm. over the course of my decade there and it was always like a bit uncomfortable or like felt like i don't know i, I probably um didn't I, to be honest like didn't think about it that much just kind of <laughs> okay. like you know just tried to like you know ride it ride it out and like i think we were like very focused on print and making an awesome right. magazine and keeping that successful and at least at that point that was like the bulk of the revenue generation so it was really um it was always kind of more about that for me and i think subsequent yeah. to my departure became much more about digital and digital and in, in like in essence became like the the leg it needed to mm -hmm. stand on versus like the sort of like nice right. nice to have instead you know not need to have um, right right but you know the the thing that was surprising too was that like the the crash of like sort of 2008 or so when was that the yeah yeah the like yeah. housing crash like mm -hmm. dwell really got hit then in a way where it was like uh, it wasn't right. you know like it, you wouldn't think that like it was affecting like m you know the kinds of houses that are in dwell but like you know less people buying houses less people like getting that inspiration that's interesting that, that was yeah. like it, it, that was maybe a more significant event than any sort of digital um disruption yeah uh, in some ways but we made it through that well let me ask you this because this was going to be my next question and that actually sets it up nicely is is maybe you know aside from kind of the digital or or even kind of cultural you know kind of socioeconomic side what how did you kind of think about uh like what it meant to cover design in that era and you mentioned you know Allison had this interest in in prefab did you have sort of interests or things that you wanted to kind of bring bring to the fore or did the the financial crash the housing market like did that change kind of how you thought about what it meant to cover these things um like from a content side how did that kind of change over your your time yeah um i think that like if i were to chart it i would say that i mean first of all i think that like the to go back and hopefully it's online somewhere but like carrie's first editor's note the fruit bowl manifesto Oh, was, right. was and is like an amazing piece of writing and was the total inspiration for the magazine and like you know dwell set out to be quote unquote the nice modernists and right. like resuscitate like the spirit and modernism never really went away but like it, that 2000 ish was that era i mean imagine mm -hmm. you're like bloopy karim rashid trash cans and like <laughs> it was a, like the year 2000 and like it was there was this vibe of like we're in, in the future now and so modernism seemed to be like really relevant again right. um but of course it kind of had a different place and i think like for me it was um again like sort of i didn't know a lot beyond my sort of like architectural history or 20th century architectural history class from <laughs> college about like design and so there was like, I think I learned a lot in that time about like the original modernists and then kind mm -hmm. of like got, was always like, you know, it was also less like the world of Pinterest where like every picture of everything was online. So, you know, I was like collecting old magazines and finding right. old books and like discovering cool stuff. And then also like, um, you know, just, I think really 
finding the things out in the world today that still that were yeah you know uh speaking to that or scratching that same kind of itch and um I, I would say that like if you know carrie had this thing that was more like a more like a thesis driven and it was less about the way things like looked right, right. allison then brought more of maybe like a an, an interest in like in housing and in more like mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. and in and certainly in prefab and in like delivering on that vision maybe and like making it accessible to people and then i mean not to i'm not like cheapening myself but i think i had like <laughs> a lot of like aesthetic interest in in, in, oh, interesting. In, yeah. And like, I think that like, I, I certainly, um, you know, was up for the a good story. Um, but I think <laughs> I brought like, a, I mean, I don't know, I just feel like maybe I had a very like, uh, maybe a more ruthless, like uh, aesthetic or a ruthless eye of like, oh, that, I, that feels, that feels right. And like elevated, than just huh. kind of being more like the uh, and certainly like we had scrappy projects all the time too. And I love that, but maybe that's what I sort of the yeah. way I saw things. So you left in 2011 and, and uh, you joined Herman Miller first as editorial director and then global brand director. Something like that. Yeah. Um, tell me about that move from growing from being like sort of journalists kind of outside reporting on these things to going in house. What was that? Yeah. What was that shift like? Yeah, it's a, I mean, that's a great question. It was definitely like the, what was on my mind. It was like, or even when I was interviewing at Herman Miller, it was kind of like, this is the same parade, but now I'm on the other side of the street right. or like now right. I'm in the parade. Uh, um, and I, it was interesting because I, I did feel like at first, like, oh man, is this going to be really limiting? Like I'm only going to yeah, have yeah. Like, Herman Miller stuff to talk about. But then, and I honestly too, like, shame on me but i knew nothing about contract furniture like i was in herman miller because like i'm like george nelson is the coolest guy ever oh yeah and Hero. like and i Hero love alexander gerard and i love the eameses and i'm like you know the rest of it yeah. i don't know what's up with this stuff it's so beige. Yeah. um but i learned but immediately kind of learned that like I started working on this project that was at the time called network place and turned into what was uh, then called living office. And oh, like right. that, that like, once you under, like, I was like, once you open up to the world of work, like that opens the door to everyone. Like we could be talking to a neuroscience or an architect or a, um, a, you know, workplace strategist and researcher, or, you know, it kind of like mm -hmm. reopened the door to a lot of things. And I realized that like, we can, in fact, like talk about anything. And then Herman Miller was going through this amazing kind of period of transformation where they were trying to expand to go from like a being a B2B kind of company to a B2B plus C company. Right. And so then right. that opened up home and like, you know, that then opens the floodgate to like all the dwell kind of stuff. And, uh, and then at the same time, I, I would just say that like, it was incredibly liberating, not, and it was almost like less commercial working inside a giant company than it was working for Dwell, like where mm. we had to like serve a lot of masters in advertising and a lot of like, right. you know, you're always like trying to go for that next big buy and big campaign. And, you know, you're also like trying to, you know, you got to listen to newsstand consultants that like are, you know, neener neenering right. your covers and your cover lines. And, you know, we got to sell this many on the newsstand. So like, you know, and then with Herman Miller, you're like, I can put a blob on the cover of this thing and no one cares, right? Like, um, right. and, you know, don't have to have some like 
cheesy headline. So, you know, I, I think it was um, not that our headlines were ever cheesy, but like it was, it was, you know, you, you kind of like had a lot more freedom within the constraints, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then I'd say also that Herman Miller was, uh, you know, like they had always had editorial people. I had this, uh, my, I would call uh, my mentor, Clark Malcolm, who had written sort of like all the amazing annual reports and sort of worked with Max Dupree on his books in the eighties. And mm-hmm. Clark, you know, Clark was like the sort of like philosopher and soul of Miller. And he, you know, like the, so there was always editorial people, but now like, the, if you think about the timing of that, it's like 2011, like the right. internet and like blogs were a thing. And Herman Miller had a couple of weird blogs, but we launched like Y Magazine. And that right. was pretty revolutionary for her, uh, a company to create an online publication. And like Herman Miller as like largely a B2B brand then, I think like had, a, uh, and Herman Miller has an amazing legacy of publications, even yeah. up to the 2000s with C Magazine. Um, oh right i remember and, that and like but with why i think like you look at i look at you know every company in the world now has basically mm-hmm. what we did with why and not to mm-hmm. say that like i invented that but like there's you know three stories across in a grid and you know keep scrolling like <laughs> online magazines weren't a thing in 2011 2012 but yeah. they certainly are now and i you know i think we like really were able to kind of you you could you could own the distribution, you know, you didn't have to rely on PR as much as an organization like that to tell your story. Now you could put it out there and with social media, you could like get people to know about it. And like my idea of success with what we did with why was like when I would, I would Google search by image. And if those images popped up more on, on like other people's sites than on Herman Miller's sites, that was a win because like essentially like we were being funded by Aaron chairs and not like you know and this was like brand marketing this was the soft sell um this was getting people to love herman miller and then also like insight marketing and it was like you know i think people don't even know like how complex of a company herman miller is and it's only become more complex with mergers and acquisitions yeah the rest (laughs) of it but you know from covering the workplace and healthcare and home and uh you know institutions and education and then it's just like um sort of but as brand marketing was like kind of trying to rise above all of that and like give some shape to like what herman miller means and what herman miller is about which can get lost in like all those specific areas of execution where when like all those different marketing teams with very different kinds of uh, mandates and goals right i mean i have i've uh, this is going to get to a question, but this is going to be a little bit kind of a long winding response to everything you just said, because you're talking about all the things I'm kind of interested in also. And I'm, I think a, an interest that it seems like we share is uh, an interest in sort of institutional histories. You did the, a book, you, you kind of co-edited a book on Herman Miller, and then you, you also recently did one on Nike. Um, and so I, I've spent a lot of time reading about like the history and complexity of Herman Miller. And so you're, you're very much speaking my language. Um, but as I was thinking about you in this conversation and what I wanted to talk to you about, and I was spending a lot of time with this, this Nike book and at kind of face value, this seemed like an outlier in your career. I was trying to figure out kind of how I could, how this fit into everything else that, that you were doing. And in a weird way, the the Nike book sort of unlocked your whole career for me, which is that 
this intersection of brand and editor editorial is just completely fallen away. Um, it's all storytelling now. And that's sort of like what you were just talking about, thinking about with Herman Miller is that this was about getting people to love Herman Miller, but you were doing it through storytelling and sort of editorial and publishing. And that's what Nike does. And that's what you're doing at, at, um, you know, at the Eames in many ways also. And you have the, you know, Kazam magazine on the Eames site, which we didn't talk about, but I'm wondering if you could sort of just, extrapolate on that a little bit more about this sort of idea of like editorial and storytelling as it relates to brand. How are those different? How are those the same? How do you kind of think about all of them now, now that you have spent like the last half of your career at, on the brand side, but you're still kind mm -hmm. of doing what you were doing at Dwell in many ways. Sure. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think that like the Nike thing is a little bit of an outlier, but it came through uh, my great friend, Amelia Tirani, who is the uh, design editor at Fiden. Uh, and so even like in the Herman Miller book, we worked on that for like five years. Uh, yeah. That was a job, like a full-time job on top of a job. Um, and then like, and she had kicked off this project with, with Nike in that period. So, uh, and then I came on sort of like in the last year and a half or two years of that mm. as, um, as the, as the writer. Um, and the other, the other like input there was like for Nike, they wanted, you know, like they hadn't thought of themselves as a design driven company, but here they right. have a CEO who used to be a designer and like, right. like who else there's like very few companies of that size that have, um, have right. that kind of like design and, but like yet design at Nike is kind of a different thing than design at Herman Miller or design elsewhere. Um, but it is a very design driven company. Uh, and mm -hmm. they wanted to, the point of that book was to like, look at Nike from the point of view of design, which I think I, and I, I think why they like chose me or uh, is because I kind of could bring both the design background and of like making design accessible through kind of a dwell lens, but mm -hmm. then also like a new kind of, I could speak the internal language of organizations and I kind of understood organizational structure in a way from my experience at Herman Miller <laughs> right. uh, that like they even Nike themselves maybe had less ability to do. So that was kind of that, but I, I do, you know, get back to your question. I think it is that like everything is brand now and everything is storytelling now. And like, there's so much out there, but also there's so much that like, there's a lot of room for people that people want <laughs> to know more about these things. Um, and I think certainly like there's more interest in design than ever. Mm -hmm. um, and there's more interest in kind of like the story behind things than ever. So, and, and brands have the means to be able to connect that to audiences directly, like both in their consumer business and with their storytelling. I mean, now at this point, you, you, you know, you had 10 years at Dwell. Now you have kind of 10 years on the brand side. Do you, do you see those as the same? Like, do, are, are you approaching your roles now differently than you did before? I mean, also like it works inversely. Like I think we worked for 10 years on the Dwell brand. <laughs> right, and, like I, I didn't true. realize, point, yeah. I, I didn't realize that really until later That's in some ways, yeah. but like, you know, we were designing the business cards and redesigning every time you did something in the magazine, it was like, or we redesigned, we did big redesign of the magazine yeah. circa like 2008. Those are like the same kinds of things you do in brand. 
Uh, right. But I, I don't right. think we quite thought of it that way. But we were the creative and design department, and you know, and essentially doing the like created the Dwell brand. Um, and so it's not that different. Um, yeah. But it, I think yeah. because of because of the world that existed or exists around magazines, that kind of kept it in a different box. But now those like those divisions, thanks I think largely to the internet, have largely like melted away at least for me i like you know we also used yeah. to talk about like the church and state between like advertising <laughs> right. and editorial <laughs> right and you know but it's like i don't know i don't know what that world is like anymore yeah that's a great point i had not thought about about dwell as a brand in the same way and and i think that's you know it just sort of proves the point that we were making that these differences have completely kind of fallen away i have a weird question for you that i was not going to ask you but you brought up george nelson earlier who was uh what was was he creative was he design director at herman miller was that his official title yeah something along those lines design director i mean it's like varyingly referred to as design director or creative director yeah, yeah. i mean he's somebody who is a like the Eames in many ways has been a big influence on me and how I think about my work um, as somebody who was a writer uh, and critic and somebody who kind of thought a lot about design and then also was was kind of doing the work at the same time and has had a career, you know, in a way like yours where he's like working in magazines and then he went to, to Herman Miller and I found an old interview that you had done where you had to like list your favorite books and you mentioned his on design book. Um, what what kind of influence has he had on you or, or is there anything you kind of learned from his, his writing or even his time at Herman Miller that you've kind of taken to heart? I mean, I, yeah, huge, huge. I mean, like that is my, I, I don't know. It's like, he's also like, I think pretty problematic in some ways. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. But, totally. but like, um, but he's also like still like, I think the probably closest in like, person that i think of like in, in my own path um but yeah. like what's interesting about him and i've spent a lot of time in a lot of different archives kind of sifting through a lot of his shit um <laughs> but it's and reading and like and things are still turning up like um my friend amy ausherman the archivist oh, yeah. of herman miller she um have had this amazing little booklet that some students at the university of michigan where he was a visiting professor in 1984 like really almost right before he died put together in memoriam this essay and a kind of like q a that he had with one of his classes and it is like this amazing acerbic and yet like and really like funny and bitter in the George Nelson way kind of essay about like what the future will hold for this planet. And uh. it's pretty dark, but at the same time, like maybe has a glimmer of hope at the end. He talks about how like we should maybe be like trying to raise a, a race of, of gardeners and that like, mm. and that, that a planet uh, populated by gardeners wouldn't be such a bad place. But mm. um, you know, so there's like still things that are turning up, but like George, like, you know, he studied architecture and then he like tried practicing architecture, but he's like, it was so boring. I couldn't do it. And like, then he went, he found a job in editorial and like, the, again, kind of like me, just like the editorial world. And especially if you think about it sort of in the 1930s, like that was like being on the internet, yeah. um, you know, like that was connecting to everything and to everyone that was going on in the world. And there was amazing kind of cool correspondence from his time at the architectural forum with the Eameses even he's like, yeah. you know, I'm look forward to seeing what your team of artists engineers are up to when I'm next out on the West coast. Um, and 
you know, I think then the, the Herman Miller thing, like he had never designed a stick of furniture in his life, basically, but right. like convinced DJ that like, you know, he had these provocative ideas about the storage wall that again, like he worked on with, was it Henry, right? Um, yeah. And and they wrote that Tomorrow's House book. And, you know, this is another editor at the ARC Forum. And then even like when he got, like came on to design furniture, like Herman Miller set him up with... Um, Right. Ernest Farmer, who was right. had worked in Gilbert Rohde's office. And then Ernest Farmer wanted to go to school at IIT with like Mies as, as he was German and kind of had always wanted to go to the Bauhaus. And so he left for a bit and like Ernest set him up with Irving Harper, who had also worked in Rohde's office. And then right. Ernest came back. And so it was like Ernest and George and Irving. And really a lot of what we think of as like George Nelson designs are Ernest Farmer designs and mm -hmm. Irving Harper mm -hmm. designs. And that's the truth of like his whole career. And then like, some, some, you know, now we're like, oh yes, like George Mulhauser designed the coconut chair. And like some people know that, but at the same time, it's like, in the day like george nelson was he understood media really well and he right. was like the right. ultimate pit he was like even bigger kind of like personality and pitch man than maybe because he was in new york and the media connections than the Eameses in some ways so mm -hmm. you know i think like I, I don't uh i don't necessarily i think that's part of my career trajectory but like <laughs> right. it, it's right. an interesting and it's an interesting side of it to like look at it when you know that stuff to look at his whole career through that lens and like through yeah. the lens of media and editing more so than design because i don't think he was more of like a napkin sketch designer right um, although he could right. certainly you know like he could draft and draw he just did yeah and i did not i did not mean to to like lionize or to you know to give him the credit or to say that you're kind of taking credit for for team's work but i think that sort of move from writing to sort of these different thinking about brand thinking about media has influenced me and it seems you know it seems like you followed you know some of those lessons in a kind of contemporary it's know, certainly like a nicer huge, way yeah like no that is certainly a huge influence and like i i just i um i mean that whole period in herman miller's history and all those designers that were involved i mean that's like the the gods on mount olympus as far as i'm concerned like you know it was an amazing legacy to be able to kind of get to play with and get to dig into what's next for you like uh you know you're, you're you're doing this work at the eames are there things that you're kind of wanting to do there that you haven't been able to do before are there topics that you're interested in or or you know kind of where's where's your head right now what are the things that are exciting you yeah a great question uh, i mean i think like one is that as i was saying before we sort of have launched virtually and so there's a lot more to do in the in the real world and i'm still like i joke that i'm a print dinosaur and so, you know, but I, I like the real, I like the real thing. And right now I, we're doing a lot of things to kind of like tee up a future in which people can actually interact with us as an organization. Mm -hmm. And so like, but whether it's physical spaces or it's more like tangible things. And so that's like, um, you know, there's certainly like a lot of next steps there. Um, and I think bringing, bringing this whole project to life for people in a way that we haven't really been able to do yet is the next, next. But for instance, uh, we acquired William Stout architectural books in San Francisco. Oh, wow. wow. And so we're, we have like, um, we're kind of like, it's our first merger and acquisition. Uh, but like, congratulations. Yeah, no, we're, uh, but you know, Bill was retiring. And that place could either go away or it could continue. And we thought it was really worth um, supporting and continuing. Oh, that's amazing. So there's a whole new exercise of like figuring out kind of like what the, what the Bill Stout brand is without Bill Stout and like what 
the world needs in an architectural and design bookstore and yeah. like bringing that to life. Um, and so that's something that's going to be fun, uh, to think about. And, but I don't know, you know, I don't know what the future holds. I, there's just like, there's so much more to do with the Eames Institute. Uh, yeah. Right now we're working on a, a new space for our organization that is a combination of warehouse and office. And so mm. I've been pretty enmeshed in that. And that's like a, um, you know, one more kind of step along the way. And it's, but it's like, we're in a, it's a very, it's a sort of funny, like a nonprofit startup in a lot of ways where like we're figuring out as we go yeah. and, you know, our, our model is changing as we go. But there's certainly like no shortage of like good stuff to keep us busy. My last question is the question I used to end all of these. I'm curious what you're reading right now. Oh my gosh. I have not read a book in forever. <laughs> I am reading, uh, but I, uh, my, my father gave me uh, the Kim Stanley Robinson book, The Ministry for the Future. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And, it's uh i'm almost done with it it's, it's very i recommend it to us all i'm like yes. why aren't we doing this now yeah. um, it's an intense it's, book it is very intense but it also has like some glimmer of hope um but yeah. yes I, i'm reading that and um i also just uh, to go back to george nelson i just found i just got the catalog for this um exhibit that was like the reopening of the cooper hewitt museum in 1976 that the nelson office designed called man Transforms. oh interesting it's like hans holbein designed the exhibit but it's got oh, all wow. these great it's got all these great contributors um and the nelson office designed it um but it's got like yeah that's so i've been dipping in and out of that as well oh that's a good one i'm kind of jealous of that one actually um, Sam, this was, this was great. So thanks so much for doing this. Uh, thanks for being on the podcast. Well, it's been my pleasure. I feel like we just scratched the surface. This episode was recorded on October 21st, 2022. Our theme music is by Andrew Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.